Hello and welcome to the show. Uh, we have a really interesting episode for you coming up. Just a warning for you, a few minutes into the episode my microphone decided to cut out and my uh, recording is of uh, lower quality than uh, normal, so apologies for that. But it's still a great episode and I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. On today's show we are looking at comic books, Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how cinema has changed over the last two decades. And I'm delighted to say that we are joined by comic book superfan and friend of the show, Dominic Tunney. Dominic, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me guys. Before we let Vaughn get into the history of comic books, let's start by quickly getting everyone's thoughts on Marvel and the MCU and what comes to mind. So Toby, do you want to kick us off? What comes to mind when you think of the term Marvel Cinematic Universe? Uh, I think probably like the the neurons that blast off, blast off in two ways, I think. Uh, first, I, I think about the the actual movies, the, the movie experience, um, Iron Man, uh, the first Iron Man, I think of the first um, Avengers movie. You know, I, th- I think of the fact that um, it, I thought it was a, quite a fun movie. Uh, I, th- I thought I, I was. I thought that it was the jokes were so well written in the movie. I'd, I'd never been a movie that I knew was 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 made for mass consumption, but that that the writing was so fresh and um, and novel and, and interesting. And I, and I always found um, those movies to be to, to be fine, well-made movies. But then the, the new ones blast off in a different way. And I think of the the changing of American cinema from a financial perspective uh, to trying to pull in the the emerging markets of China to the emerging middle classes of China and India, yeah, and uh, the projection of of, of films that. Uh, while they they have uh, some artistic value, have a broad universal interest because they're sort of drained of a of a clear Americanism and a clear sort of cultural uh, sort of deep cultural resonance, uh, and that can be universal film. So yeah, I think those are the two things that the, the sort of uh, the two neurons are sort of blast off in my head when I think of the of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What about yourself, Dominic? Um, for me, it was, the, when I think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I just think about how it has changed cinema fundamentally, and there isn't a single other studio that hasn't tried to dip its fingers and toes inside the, um, the the prosperous well that is multi-franchise movies where uh, we saw it with universal and their uh dark universe we we've seen it with dc obviously um the man of steel series uh and all its subsequent um iterations uh even the fast and the furious i think every other franchise has when i think of marvel i think of every other movie franchise and movie uh, production company just trying to copy it and obviously I think about a lot of what Toby has also thought where it's 
Marvel initially got that hook with the uh, comedy and the humor uh, with those first few movies, and now it's changed over time, trying to appeal with other um, nations and uh, emerging markets. But I really think about the impact on the uh, movie industry as in general. And yourself, Will? I agree with um, both Toby and Dom. The, the first thing that comes to mind is like, this is new. This, this is a fundamental change to Hollywood. Um, I also have a, a very personal kind of connection to it because Marvel films are something that I've traditionally seen with friends. Um, it's been something that has been a kind of cornerstone of, or not cornerstone, but kind of touchstone in many of my friendships, um, especially that with Dom, that it's something we talk about regularly. And when there's a new phase of Marvel, what has changed? What has changed for cinema? What has changed for these characters? Uh, how, how are things developing? So it's something that we've grown as adults with um, over, what, a 14-year period since the first uh, MCU film. So I have a very kind of personal connection to it. And I also um, have this filmic interest in it of, of what's changing in Hollywood kind of fundamentally. Um, if you listen to the last episode of Joy of Star Wars, you'll know that I'm absolutely obsessed with the idea of cinematic universes. I just, I find them just, oh, mind blowing. I love them so much because it's, we're going to get so much more into this, but um, I find them absolutely captivating. And whether they're a good thing or a bad thing, I think there's something that's, that are worth talking about. Um, as Dom just said, so many studios have tried to dip into cinematic universes, whether successfully or unsuccessfully. Uh, but Marvel, I think we can all agree, is an overwhelmingly successful cinematic universe. And they just have it so clearly regimented. Um, so that's, that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today, the, the positives and negatives of cinematic universes, and what's really changing here. What is a cinematic universe? in terms of kind of Hollywood history and intellectual properties and all of those kind of buzzwords. Absolutely. And just to kind of agree with everyone in their sentiments, I, I, my, my own thoughts have been that I consume these films and enjoy them as, as mass entertainment products and they are hugely enjoyable. And I've, I think I've seen all of the films, many of them multiple times. And yet at the same time, I kind of understand that it's also kind of accelerated uh, a process where movies and American cinema has, has essentially split into two, where we have mass entertainment, which is what's available now in cinemas, which is more and more just IP, such as Marvel or, or DC. And that's what's getting a, a cinematic release and that, that's what's getting... Um, to kind of be at the top of the, the charts as far as we can, we count and sort of end of year uh, box office. And then on the other end, you have the, the smaller films, you know, Power of the Dog, for instance, is out now, which is getting released to Netflix and is le far less likely to be in cinemas at all, let alone the top grossing film of the year. And I think back to previous decades when you had things like The Godfather or Rain Man being not only Oscar winning films, but the highest grossing movie of the year. And I think about that sort of middle class of American cinema, which is becoming less and less. And 
we've moved towards what Scorsese described as, as being sort of um, roller coaster um, cinema, you know, experience where you're taking in these things that are kind of retreads upon retreads, which some may seem as harsh, but um, I, I think I think a good example of this is is the fact that um, the Marvel films are plotted out years in advance, and, and they use technology to actually story board their action scenes years in advance before a director maybe is even sort of assigned to the film because they 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 have kind of successfully brought this down to a formula and they even have things like the color grading on their films is kind of closer to television and closer to like more grayed out um sort of um approach that is certainly certainly in the first half of their sort of cinematic universe their films didn't really pop with color because it was quicker to do as far as on a coloring scheme and also it was just that it, it was easier for them to sort of sell internationally and sell to a broad audience if they didn't kind of go into the, the, the dark blacks on, on the screen compared to having it kind of more and more washed out in general color so i think about all these things that marvel has been a fascinating accelerator of of where we are now with cinema i assume we would have got there anyway with things like netflix moving us towards streaming content rather than thinking about going to cinematic uh, experience of sitting down in the dark and watching a film but I, I do think it just so happened that that was coming along at the same time that marvel really turned movie making into a successful formula and i, I have mixed feelings about that but it, it can't be denied that marvel have just been so much more successful doing this than any other studio and part of that is simply because they understand their product and they understand their audience so much better than things things like the dc universe or or the the monster universe which don't touched upon and so i can't help but be kind of marveling at their success but at the same time um it does kind of make me uh twinge at the thought of is, is this kind of it now you know do we get 12 films a year that we can go see in a cinema and everything else just gets released to netflix or online um so that was kind of my long-winded uh, uh thoughts on just kind of where we are but it can and i think the last thing is probably as something that simon's always talked about is the serialization of of, of cinema and film obviously mm -hmm. i think you guys have all touched on it in different ways but to be able to go into a film and being able to get gain more of the film by by knowing the previous mm. film or or other materials and Marvel comics outside of the film itself, so films that used to be far more self-contained, uh, mm. and now there's there's almost like a, a secondary uh, semiotic quality to to these films where people with more advanced knowledge can learn and appreciate and critique these movies at a deeper level because of their uh, indulgence in marvel content outside i you remember my experience with, with deadpool where it was almost like watching some sort of korean movie uh, <laughs> i'd never seen and then my cousin who's a huge um, marvel fan was was seeing so many inside jokes you know the, mm -hmm. the not only the meta quality but the his lived experience with marvel and with the movie itself well, allowed him to sort of to just have a deeper uh, indulgence in the movie that I, I couldn't have. And, and again, it's, sort of, it's not like uh, there's a removal of a kind of like high level of critical engagement in film. It's there, 
but it's different because it's it's just a different approach to, to making cinema absolutely and this is something we'll touch on later uh, well perhaps we'll touch on later if we have the time but even just the concept of what a serialized film now is and that's something that we talked about in joy star wars is that you know it's the, the idea for a film trilogy which was you've seen star wars and you saw with back to the future and some batman and spider-man you know is is that maybe not the goal anymore is it instead to kind of fill it out and, and create a universe and even something like the james bond series which is um, maybe not a cinematic universe but their most recent films have been more continuations of a story and so as toby said in, in the past films were a bit more standalone even for something like james bond which is maybe not the cinematic universe of the mcu it's a bit more serialized than it was before and it's more willing to sort of have an overarching story as well as as trying to have one-off entertainment but i'm sure we'll get into into this kind of stuff a little bit later um, Vaughn, do you want to take us into the history of comic books and, and Marvel and all that good stuff? Yes, I do, Simon. Okay, I promise I'm going to try to keep this as brief <laughs> as possible. Um, history of comics is a feat, but it is and it's something, something you know well. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, you know this quite well, Vaughn. I've published on the history of comics and cartoons and my uh, master's thesis was on a Marvel comic book. So I know this quite well, but that's almost worse for keeping this brief because there's so much to talk about, but okay. Yes. So and if you miss anything at all, we will get Dominic to, to jump on it and tell you otherwise. Okay, so no pressure. Yeah. And also fire me, but that's <laughs> Okay. Um, so comic books so comics started really in i already hate myself for saying this but comics started as comic strips in the 1840s um with the first compendium of cop compendium of comic strips being published in hardcover as a sort of kind of prototype of comics as we imagine them today in 1842 so this kind of medium was used for political satire a lot of the time um, sometimes some social problem issues that were, were dealt with within comics, but largely for um, comedic effect and entertainment value. Uh, there are stages to the progression of comics that move through these hardcover compendiums to kind of proto-magazines uh, at the turn of the century, the first of which was The Yellow Kid in McFadden's Flats from 1897, which is a horribly racist comic strip compendium. Um, and on the back of that book is the first recorded use of the phrase comic book. So it was this, this collection of strips from um, a different publication that had, quote unquote, the yellow kid in those publications. So comic books in the States as actual periodicals of roughly 32 pages uh, bound in a magazine, as we would kind of recognize them, originated in 1933 with a series called Famous Funnies. Uh, and Famous Funnies and the subsequent contemporary series of comic books throughout the 30s were largely just reissues or reprints of uh, collected comic strips as they had been for the, the last kind of uh, 80 years or so, coming from newspapers and journals and other print publications. 
So these comic collections became increasingly popular throughout the Great Depression and peaked in 1935 when the first comic book of all original content without any reproductions um, entitled New Fun was published under National Allied Publications in 1935. Now, National Allied Publications had a series of subsidiaries called like Adventure Comics and Action Comics. Um, and Action Comics introduced their lead character, Superman, in Action Comics number one in June 1938. And Action Comics was joined by Detective Comics uh, around the same time, introducing their lead, Batman, in Detective Comics number 27 in May 1939. So despite um, National Allied Publications being known as either National or Super DC as early as 1940, and also colloquially known as DC Comics for decades, um, National Allied Publications formally changed their title in 1977 to adopt DC Comics. So this, this is kind of the, the origin story here. But back to the 30s. So it's the Great Depression. It's a time of one. It's a time of kind of shaken faith in the government. And we can speculate all day as to why comics gained such popularity in the 30s. And we can talk for days about the characters that came out of the 30s, like Superman and Batman and Flash Gordon, um, Captain Marvel, aka Shazam, uh, not Marvel's Captain Marvel, but the original. Um, Shazam sold over half a million copies a month in the late 1930s and early 1940s. When World War II hit, uh, we get Captain America punching Hitler in the face in Captain America Comics number one in March 1941. Wonder Woman emerges in December 1941 in All-Star Comics number eight. And we, we have this kind of flush of characters, vibrant characters, uh, in this era known as the golden age of comics. So we're served patriotism in droves and reimaginings of what it is to be an American. Um, so many of these comics answered the question of whether there can be a blanket American identity. And there's a clear kind of symbolism that comes out of this era of what it means to be an American and what it looks like, quote unquote, looks like to be an American and the values that Americans fight for uh, that come out of this overwhelmingly popular corpus of entertainment. So Americans look like Superman and they fight for quote, truth, justice in the American way, kind of like whatever, whatever that means, whatever the American way truly means. But that's the idea that's coming out of the thirties and forties. And we can take that in so many different directions and talk about immigration and xenophobia in the lead up to these characters and these comics. And we can talk about the standardizing of American identity within them and the overwhelming negatives that that does for a lot of communities. Um, we could do a lot here and we might later on in this conversation, but suffice to, suffice to say that these comics uh, really met the moment and they met it very well. And in my interpretation, they they provided identity and hope for many Americans who were living through particularly awful years in the Depression in World War II, um, who wanted to believe in something supernatural that wasn't quite divine, something that humans could embody and kind of become in the everyday and something that they could link American virtues to. 
So keep that in mind while I attempt the rest of this history. So comics uh, came and come in very in in many varieties. So you have tons of different genres under the kind of concept of comics. So you get war comics and westerns and sci-fi, romance, crime, horror. Um, later on, you get all Americans and Planet Weird and Strange Tales. Uh, they're a very active part of culture and a responsive medium to the climate around them, much like cinema and television. So we can really use these as a seriously underrepresented um, source base for historical analysis. That's my little plug that I always have to justify. But in the immediate post-war period, we see a shift away from straightforwardly superhero comics that dominated the 30s and the early 40s. Um, publishers shift away from superheroes into these other genres to maintain reader attention and keep something fresh and exciting. Uh, and as a result, they dropped some titles altogether or merged them together. So for instance, from 48 to 52, uh, there was a comic series called Venus, which I wrote my MA thesis on. Um, Venus was a timely comic series, timely comics, which would later become Marvel. Um, and it started out as a superhero, super heroine comic, exploring her powers as a goddess, but eventually it went through several genres of like horror and sci-fi and romance and crime and some really weird shit starts happening with Thor and Zeus. It's, it gets bizarre. Um, and by 1952, it was pretty much unrecognizable from the first issue. So this period um, of the like post-war to early 50s also saw Disney get in on the action with Walt Disney's comics and stories peaking circulation with 3 million issues a month in 1953. By the mid-50s, uh, after Eisenhower wins in 1952 and Republicans come back to um, the executive branch and are also in, uh, in power in Congress. We see rising conservatism, the rise and fall of McCarthyism, and all of this kind of cultural climate affects comics by bringing the golden age of comics to an end. The, the comic book industry ultimately fell victim to um, congressional attacks, as one does in the 50s. So I swear I'm trying to keep this brief, but it's super interesting. So youth culture wasn't really a thing until the 1950s. Um, legislation extending high school around the country invented this new kind of age group called teenagers. And this it was this like weird zone between 16 and 18 years old where you used to go to schools and then straight from school, go to work and essentially be adults, but now they had to stay in school. So they weren't quite kids anymore, but they weren't quite adults either. And this absolutely like wrecked culture for a bit. Um, it threw everything for a loop and like dating trends changed and like labor laws and music and Hollywood and everything's reacting to like teenagers because there's suddenly this new market to target and also a new age group to demonize. So enter Frederick Wortham. Frederick Wortham was a psychiatrist who blamed all the juvenile delinquency of the last decade, you know, during the Great Depression and World War II and the Korean War, on violent influences from com comic books. Um, he wrote a book in 1954 entitled Seduction of the Innocent, blaming comics for all of society's ills. Um, it was very common in this era and even more today, but um, to find a hill to blame all of society's problems on, call it science, and then just die on that hill. So Frederick Wortham did that with comics. And the Senate subcommittee on, sorry, Toby, did 
did you want to jump in? I'm just laughing. I'm sorry. Oh, good. That's <laughs> no, okay. So the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency uh, held hearings in April 1954, which focused specifically on comic books and their creators. And as a result of this, the Comics Code Authority, the CCA, was founded in 1954 as an alternative to a government oversight committee. So the code was voluntary, but many comic uh, advertisers and retailers looked to it for like comfort and reassurance that they wouldn't get heat for selling comics without it. <sighs> okay. Simultaneously, it was the 50s. Television was rapidly growing in popularity and comic sales were dropping. DC decided it was time to revive the superhero in 1956 and ushered in the Silver Age of Comics. Um, after middling success from Timely and Atlas, which are both soon to be known as Marvel, um, in reviving their, their superheroes in late 54 and 55. So showcase number four reintroduced the Flash and the new era was like off and running. So by 1961, Stanley and Jack Kirby um, created the Fantastic Four in response to this superhero revivalism and also renamed Timely and Atlas to Marvel in 61. Marvel's releases uh, were from this like dynamic team that you might recognize some of the names of, including Stan Lee and um, Kirby and Steve Ditko, uh, Don Heck and others who really established Marvel. And they started this new wave of comics that became increasingly popular with the recently inaugurated like age of teenagers. Um, and also young college students who could identify with the new young heroes, such as Superman and X-Men and the Fantastic Four. Now, this is crucial. From 1957 to 1968, Marvel was restricted to publishing only eight titles a month. Um, their releases were being published by the rival company National, which eventually would become DC, as I mentioned. So... Because of this restriction, Marvel could focus more of its energies into their core stories and concentrate the brightest and best talents they had on the quality of the product, which really set Marvel apart in the 1960s from other labels. So this restriction that would probably like, uh, force other independent artists to kind of crumble was really an advantage for Marvel. So in the late 60s, uh, there were also waves of comics known as underground comics with an X that explored social issues and like sex, drugs, rock and roll, uh, the whole 60s mood. Ultimately, these underground comics fell victim to regulation in the 1970s and paraphernalia laws um, because most of these underground comics were sold in head shops that were then closed after the paraphernalia laws. So they ultimately lost most of their audiences from um, the like lack of places to sell the comics, but also in the post-hippie world of the late 70s. By the Bronze Age, which is the 1970s, um, there were a lot of continuations of titles from the Silver Age, and they maintained many of the core characters. However, they also followed suit with mainstream culture of the 70s, exploring darker storylines and plot elements. Um, they were more keyed into like the social issues and ills of society, such as race and class dimensions. So think like taxi driver, but comics. Um, this brings us up to the quote unquote modern age between the 80s and 90s. So the 70s saw the opening of quote direct market distribution system uh, in which specialty stores, i.e. comic book shops, started popping up in cities around the country. 
Um, by the early 80s, these were much more popular and frequent in suburbs and shopping malls. And while, while it did offer comic book fans um, a kind of community and a specific shop of kind of wonderment and all of the titles you could dream of, um, it also allowed some more independent creators opportunity to be sold alongside Marvel and DC. And it did unfortunately shift comics out of the public eye, which kind of created an almost separate cultural group of comic book fans. In the mid to late eighties, DC Comics released Batman The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. And these two captured critical acclaim and also mainstream media attention. So these two marked another new trend ushering in the quote unquote grime and gritty era of the 1990s, which was a growing kind of grunge movement that idolized anti-heroes such as Wolverine and the Punisher. Um, independent publishers such as First Comics, Dark Horse Comics, and Image Comics all embraced this change as well and continued publishing some of my favorite storylines into the 2000s, um, including the Clone War comics from Dark Horse in the mid-naughties and Sex Criminals from Image in the 2010s. The 1990s also gave more opportunity, as I said, to independence, and this included giving a platform to a whole sect of underrepresented voices in the comics industry. Okay, I'm going to stop there and ask Dom if he has anything else to add on the history of comics. And then I have a very quick, a very, very quick uh, few sentences on Hollywood's desire to get into the comic industry. So that can set us up for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But Dominic, what have I missed? Okay, so um, I've extremely spot on, but um, there are a lot of interesting nuances that really lead up to uh, the creation of Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, during uh, the early 70s, or uh, late 70s, early 80s, um, there, how should I say this? Um, sorry for uh, flubbing here. Um, the This whole dark and gritty revival um, was an entrance point for a lot of older comic fans who had left the genre um, during the 60s and 70s. Um, it, it, it was more targeted at a uh, younger demographic. Um, and during the 80s with Watchmen, Dark Knight, uh, the British Invasion, as they called it, where a lot of English comic or English and Scottish comic artists and writers came over to America and started writing comics that they got later. Um, if I remember correctly, a lot of the Marvel publishing comics uh, came to the United Kingdom a lot later than they were in America. So these kids would get them later. Um, and these authors were much more young and then they entered the comic space and then they wrote the comics that they wanted to see with a uh, different perspective. Um, Al Moore with The Watchmen and Superman, whatever happened to the world of... Uh, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. Um, these were all a lot dark and grittier stories. Um, and these dark and grittier stories reinvigorated the American fan base. Um, the American fan base then started looking for their uh, old comics. Um, back then you probably can uh, go into a comic shop today and imagine everything being uh, bagged and boarded with uh, nice clear plastics uh, bags and hardboards to keep comics 
uh, in mint condition forever. You can throw them in a box and forget about them and come back and they'll be the same as you they were when you left them in there. Um, during the 70s, 60s, 50s, that wasn't the case. Um, comics were a disposable medium um, for younger generations. You know, a kid would read it on the way to school, tear it up, lend it to a friend, it'd get torn up, throw it in a trash can. Um, during the 80s, a lot of these people went back through and started remembering, oh, like, I wonder if I still have Action Comics 27, and they would find all of these older comics. And that actually led straight into the 90s. Um, and Marvel and DC noticed, oh, there is a big secondhand market for people finding these older comics. And specifically the comics that had always uh, had a higher value were uh, comics with variant covers or special artists or um, first appearances, deaths, marriage issues, uh, and that kind of created this whole big bubble during the 90s where um, it was headed by uh, all-star artists like Rob Liefeld and um, uh, Todd McFarlane. They would make these crazy comic runs. Todd, uh, uh, Liefeld, Rob Liefeld was renowned for... Um, all his X-Men runs, uh, introducing new characters, um, new variant covers very, very frequently. Um, and during this whole period, Marvel and DC basically went to bankrupt themselves, selling hundreds of variant covers for new issues, introducing these crazy storylines where people, uh, would die, get reborn, come back, get married, die again. Um, and this speculator market emerged where people said, oh, a new issue, let me buy it, sell it on the secondhand market uh, for higher than it was. Um, and it was a speculator market, it was a bubble. It kept on growing and growing and growing and growing and suddenly one day it popped and people realized these new comics were not valuable. The reason that the older comics were valuable is because they were limited print runs. Um, the reason that Action Comics 1 is so highly valued right now isn't because it had multiple area covers. It's because there are so few Action Comics number ones left in good condition. Um, and when you're flooding a market with hundreds and thousands of brand new, you know, uh, Spider-Man, uh, Venoms, um, there's no value in that. Everybody can go out and buy them. Um, so that eventually led to the uh, direct collapse of the comic industry. And Marvel was actually going bankrupt. Um, and as Marvel went bankrupt, uh, to stay afloat, that is when they ended up selling off all their movie rights to Fox, Sony, um, New Line Cinema. Uh, and they only retained a very core central few characters. Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Ant-Man. Um, but that is why a lot of those characters were the first MCU movies because Marvel didn't have the rights to any other. So uh, sorry for that little long ramble there. But. No, that was fantastic, Dominic. Um, Vaughn, was there anything you'd like to, to add uh, to where we got to? 
Um, in terms of comic book history, I think I think we're up to date, uh, at least up until 2000, and then things shift. But we'll get into that in a minute. Um, if I can, I'll set up Hollywood, though. Go for it. With that? Cool. Okay, so very, very briefly. So films um, of comics started as early as the 1936 Flash Gordon film serial. Um, and a film serial is essentially a bunch of short films that are released kind of subsequently and seen in a Nickelodeon. Um, so very early 20th century kind of stuff. But the Flash Gordon serial is now in the Library of Congress in the National Film Registry and coded as being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, end quote, to American history. Um, throughout the 40s, there were middling attempts to bring Batman to screen in 1943, Captain America in 1944, and Superman in 1948. Uh, there were very successful television shows of comics through the 50s and 60s, and also not successful ones. But the, the best known is, of course, the Batman series in 1966 to 68, starring um, Adam West as Batman and Cesar Romero as the Joker. Um, in the campest, campy camp version of Batman to ever exist. And it's perfect. Um, it, is, it is such a great show. It is so good. So good. So good. Uh, and it's really interesting to compare it to the Batmans we get now. The Batman. The Batman. Batmans. <laughs> the Batmans. Um, anyway, so George Lucas uh, in creating Star Wars was actually incredibly inspired by the 1936 Flash Gordon serial. And in his whole, like, just changing Hollywood forever, um, a lesser attributed byproduct of Star Wars is the ushering in of the, the very successful superhero film. So superhero films were not a popular thing in Hollywood. They just kept hemorrhaging money. And Hollywood was like, how is this happening? If, if comics are so popular with the kids, and the youths, why aren't they watching our films? And it's because the films were terrible. They were awful. Um, and I, I know what I'm about to say, but Richard Donner's 1978 Superman was very successful and viewed at the time as good. Um, that was followed in the 80s with revivals of Batman and served us hot Michael Keaton Batman, who definitely fucks. Um, <laughs> And then the 90s saw an extension into animated series and animated films that were incredible and like genuinely excellent stuff, including X-Men and Batman the Animated Series from 1992. Um, that is the most condensed history of superhero films and content coming out of Hollywood and television, but whatever, we'll go with it. So I'm going to finish on a quote from comic historian Ian Gordon. He wrote this in the epilogue of his book, Comic Strips and Consumer Culture. Um, the book was published in 1998. And the quote reads, Marvel's immediate troubles stem from soft sales of comic books and from trading cards. But in the long term, Marvel's weakness, compared with DC, has been their inability to invigorate their characters through Hollywood blockbuster movies. Marvel has not realized the full commodity potential of their characters through other media, end quote. Um, I think that's a brilliant 
timepiece for that was extremely accurate in 1998. It was an excellent interpretation of what's happening with the comic industry and especially with Marvel um, in 1998. But only a couple years later, this absolutely shatters. And like that's that's the main content of what we want to talk about for the next uh, rest of this episode is is how did Marvel meet that moment? How did Marvel get out of those immediate troubles in 98? Um, the near bankruptcy that Dom just mentioned, the collapse of the comic book industry. How did we get to today with 20 plus films and TV shows and storylines that whether you've seen them or not, you're aware of in our culture? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know where we want to, to kind of start with this, but um, I suppose one question I, I sometimes think about is when did modern comic book movies start? And that's come, as kind of topic that often comes up um, because you had obviously the, the same Batman films of the 90s and they kind of um, fell apart as things kind of went later on. And then we, we got a reboot uh, with Christopher Nolan's films. But sort of between that, you have. Um, the X-Men films, you have the Spider-Man films, um, you have um, Blade, which has the single best line of dialogue uh, in cinematic history, where he says um, some fuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill, or so something along those lines. Some motherfuckers which, are always trying to ice skate uphill. Yeah, which is just... <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely <laughs> wrong. Uh, so, I, I suppose, Dom, do you have any in, any thoughts on that yourself, as to when, when you think of modern comic book films the kind of i suppose pre um mcu uh, what do you think of Where, is there a divide for you or is it just kind of sort of a, a, a sort of gray period before we kind of get to the, the, the harsh black and white of of what marvel and disney did with the mcu uh first off um i want to say uh vaughn had mentioned something um about viewing superman the movie as good at the time. Uh, it's a great movie. It still holds up. It's perfect. Richard Donner um, did an amazing job. And going back to Richard Donner, uh, I specifically think about the Kevin Feige era of Marvel comics uh, or of, of Marvel movies. Um, he was a consulting director on the original X-Men. He was a uh, consulting director, or, uh, sorry, consulting producer on X-Men, um, Spider-Man 2. Um, and uh, as soon as he enters the picture, he had worked um, alongside Richard Donner and uh, Lauren Donner, um, Lauren Donner being uh, the producer for a lot of the um, these early movies. Um, when I think about pre-MCU, I cannot help but think about Kevin Feige's involvement. Um, there was a clear divide, obviously, between... Uh, like. There's a very, very clear divide between pre-MCU and post-MCU movies. Um, pre-MCU movies being like Elektra, Daredevil, um, the 2004 Punisher movie, even the 2008 Punisher Warzone. Um, you can definitely see, see a clear difference in quality and in uh, simple things such as costuming. Um, and... Uh, you look at those older movies and they almost reject the ideas of the comic books. Um, even the original X-Men movie, if you look at it, uh, 
lines of dialogue saying like, what do you want us to wear? Uh, blue and yellow spandex suits. Um, there was a re rejection of what made these comics successful. Uh, rather than having tight spandex, they replaced it all with uh, dark leather. Um, specifically, again, with the X-Men, they had uh, black leather suits rather than their extremely iconic um, Chris Claremont era X-Men costume where Wolverine would be uh, with brown and yellow Colossus wore strongman short shorts nightcrawler had a big v costume of amazing things and you look at those things and you look when kevin feige comes on the scene even just in a minor role uh there is a story about how in the original x-men um he walks into the makeup department and he sees the stylist doing hugh jackman's hair as wolverine He's pushed, like the stylist pushes it back and Kevin Feige says, no, more, more, more. Keep, keep it going, keep it going. Because Wolverine in the comics has such a iconic mane of hair that goes up, kind of looks like devil horns. And everybody on set except for him was rejecting this idea of what made comics iconic and symbolic and so long lasting. Um, nobody thinks about the X-Men black costumes. Everybody thinks about the... X-Men blue costumes or the X-Men red costumes. Um, I think a pre-comic, pre-sorry, pre-MCU comic movies as a rejection of comic book ideals, minus some notable exceptions like Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. If that makes sense. I was, yeah, absolutely. So, so you're, you're not a fan of um, maybe the, the first outing of Deadpool that we saw with his mouth uh, close shut and... Um, laser beams out of his eyes and that, that's not that's not your particular take though oh i love that movie that movie is so <laughs> terrible it is <laughs> it is i don't think those movies are bad i don't think that they are terrible i think that they are an intriguing look into what hollywood thought was a good idea um but oh so shut mouth that bull I mean, it's, it, it goes a long way to say that even in the Deadpool movie, Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool makes fun of Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool. It's, yeah. I don't know, it, it's such a, there's no other medium I've seen where you can make fun of yourself like that. Absolutely. Um, and we, we saw that again. Um, I think he, in, end of the second Deadpool, where he's making fun of, of his Green Lantern and, and, their interpretations. I think that's a really interesting point. This idea of um, Hollywood or the, some Hollywood studios almost trying to reject certain parts and certain ideals of what their comic books are and what their heroes are. I, I was also listening to an interview with Ben Affleck um, a while ago, and he was saying that on in between the Daredevil film and how that didn't turn out well for him. And I think Kevin Feige, I think, was involved as a kind of lower level producer at the time on that film. And he said, that he, after the fact, he was like, if only we kind of had the right person there to kind of steer the thing. We just, you know, if only he was the one actually overseeing it rather than the people making decisions at the time. And it is a fascinating time to think of the, the early 2000s where they were trying to, to grapple with what comic books were and how to represent characters. And some of them were successful, but a lot of them weren't. And does feel that with I, I don't know 
how how it was kind of succinctly done the, the way that Marvel did it but even from the first Iron Man they found a, a really nice way of being able to tell an origin story and then sort of at the end connect it to a wider universe and the, the first Iron Man film still really holds up and I think if you look at the something like that compared to like the first Daredevil film that we saw or some of the other films that we saw with Electra for instance it does seem, I don't know if it's because of the cast, because of the, the, the writing, I don't know, because maybe they had a clear idea of the characters and the story they want to tell down the line. Um, but it, it does seem, for, for their first film, it does actually hold up really well. And you could, you could imagine another um, sort of return to reality where the first Iron Man is maybe a bit more shaky and they're still trying to find the feet. But I think because they managed to hit the ground running with that, when they maybe didn't have the same success with Hulk, they were able to basically just keep the ball rolling because they, they had other films that would come along, such as Captain America and Thor, which were, you know, even if they're not everyone's favourites, they were kind of well-produced and, and they broadly got the characters right. Um, Vaughn, is there anything else you want to kind of add? To kind of, I, I would just say, oh, just, just reflecting on what Vaughn said uh, about uh, the Marvel not being able to grapple with the full potential of the universe, I would say, like, it, reactively in that immediate period, uh, X-Men and Spider-Man, as I was, like, when I was nine or whatever, those seemed like things I would go to the cinema to watch and had, like, big potential. Iron Man, not really. Iron Man was, like, a a secondary character on, on Fox mm-hmm. News. Thor, I'd seen, like, three times, and you know, on t- television shows. Uh, Captain America, like, these weren't, they couldn't even hold down kids' television shows on Fox News. They couldn't. They weren't big comic book characters, or at least I didn't read the comic books, but they didn't seem like big comic book characters to me. They so I think in that made. in that immediate period, you did need X Men and Spider Man because X Men and Spider Man were really, really mm. big IPs at the time and were widely known. And I think that although they weren't, you know, Marvel Universe movies, they they did set. They didn't make it possible, I think, for an Iron Man to have a movie. Oh, I yeah, I very Absolutely. much agree. I yeah. I definitely agree with that. I mean, the the first. I'm going to argue this: the first extremely successful Marvel blockbuster was Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, right? 2002, it had a budget of 139 million and it made 825 million in the box office. And that really sets off what can be done now because Marvel had been seen as this kind of lackluster um, creator almost in terms of Hollywood and, and television. And the comics had such great success and brilliant quality and storytelling and all of that um, but they just no one could figure out how to translate these to film and I think Sam Raimi really is is why we have the cinematic universe that we do now of Marvel and especially with spoilers but especially with um, Spider-Man No Way Home it's now part of the cinematic universe so now we can say that the MCU started in 2002 with Sam Raimi <laughs> um, and I, I think that's that's really where this kicks off. Um, and as Dom said, Kevin Feige's involvement through through these early films really sets us up for um, 2008 when Iron Man comes out and when there starts to be this conception of, of Marvel as a cinematic universe. 
Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I, I agree extremely. Uh, you, you said it very well. Um, there's a couple things I did want to mention there. Um, Simon was saying earlier uh, that uh, Iron Man 1 was like a surprise box office hit. And you, I, I believe you said something like um, whether they left the door open uh, for sequels, it was just very surprising seeing a character you've never seen in theater. Same with Toby uh, said, like, I, who have ever heard of Iron Man? Um, I believe that a dedica- dedicated creative team uh, is all it took to make one of those movies. Um, I believe... If I remember correctly, uh, Iron Man is considered the most successful indie film of all time, um, minus Star Wars. Um, it One of the smart things that movie does, and one of the smart things comics do in general, is leave story beats open. And as Stanley uh, once said, it's always to be continued and never the end. Um, you look at any Marvel movie, it's always... To be continued, never the end. And it always drives that viewer engagement up. And uh, it rewards the viewer for noticing small things. It rewards the viewer for in Iron Man 3, uh, seeing that the uh, Mandarin didn't get away, but he's still out there. And uh, in, what is it? Hail to the King, the Blu-ray extra on Iron Man 3, you see him, the actual, the real 10 rings come through and abduct the Mandarin. And then you are awarded, what, uh, seven years later in Shang-Chi when the the Mandarin from Iron Man 3 shows up. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that it all just relies on a strong creative team. And that's when you see Spider-Man and when you see Iron Man. And uh, I would argue even Blade that you see these people who want to tell a story with this character that you've seen maybe in comics, maybe in passing, but they have a strong enough idea that they can appeal to a mass market. Yeah, I absolutely. It, I, I just would add to that, that it's definitely the creative team and like the love of the, the character and the story and, and all of that, but there's so much love in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the people who who are behind it. Um, but it also takes the money. It takes the mouse's money to do what happened with the MCU. Well, actually, uh, uh, Iron Man 1 was a non-Disney property. I don't know. If yeah. you I know it was. It. Yes. Yes. But once it was successful, the mouse <laughs> yes. was like, oh, guess what? And... <laughs> purchased um marvel a year later for four billion dollars not all of it as we know with with spider-man um and deadpool still had some rights right Uh, yes so it was it was um sony and fox still had the rights to uh spider-man and the x-men and all mutants Mm -hmm. um and I believe there were still a couple other Strangler, uh, Stragglers, uh, Universal, Universal or Paramount, I believe, still own the rights to a Hulk movie, but they did not own the rights to the Hulk. That is why there has not been a Hulk movie produced by Marvel, but rather he's only ever appeared as a side character in the Avengers or Iron Man. But there are still plenty of these weird things. Little rights issues. Yeah, rights yeah, issues just floating around. Get its hands on. Um, but that is why partly why Disney bought Fox. It was just like, 
oh, you won't give us the character? We're going to buy you. And they can because it's Disney. Um, so that Disney purchase happened in 2009 after the, the first Iron Man film. And that's what, what really, really kicked the MCU into gear was that Disney wanted to try out a cinematic universe. Um, and if we can, for a minute, let's talk about cinematic universes um, and the concept behind them. So I, um, as I said earlier, I said on the Joy of Star Wars podcast about cinematic universes that I am obsessed with them. I think they're just a fascinating kind of conceptual thing for films to go into. Um, and I conceive of cinematic universes as a fully functioning world in itself that for the length of the runtime of a film, we get to glimpse into that fully functioning world. And these characters live on before and after the events of the film. Things are still running when we are not watching. And it's, it takes a massive creative team to be able to do that and to know all of these in-jokes um, or just references or hold on to something that doesn't pay off for seven or even 12 years, um, 22 in the case of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. <laughs> and I think it's just a really fascinating kind of concept. So um, Dom, if I can ask you, how successful has Marvel been in creating a shared universe in your, your, your opinion? I mean, I, I don't think there is anything in movies that you can compare it to. It's been that, that successful. I don't think that mm -hmm. you can possibly say that it's failed. Um, the only other shared universe, the only other two shared universes that I can think that are as successful and as well-received are uh, the Fast and the Furious universe um which is kind of funny to think about being as it's only like a linear set of movies minus um the Hobbs and Shaw film that came out uh, a couple years back um and surprisingly enough a uh, movie universe you probably never think about the Conjuring universe um mm. by I believe Blumhouse um with Annabelle uh the Conjuring uh, the Nun a bunch of these smaller almost indie movies that share a similar universe. I think those are the two most successful besides Marvel. And that's kind of including Warner Brothers, uh, DCEU. Um, those movies have had such interesting reception. Um, we never got A Man of Steel 2. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984 was kind of critically panned. Um, I think the movie universes that seem to be the most successful are the ones that didn't mean to start a movie universe, a cinematic universe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I don't know where we want to um, take the conversation now. We're coming up to about an hour. Is, is there anything specifically we'd like to kind of cover maybe around the actual success of, of kind of the movies themselves and, and, and how that's kind of translated over the what, 15 years or so? We, we've kind of talked a lot about the, the period up up to uh, Marvel and then talk about kind of in general. Um, do we want to maybe just touch upon why we think Marvel itself and then Disney's acquisition thereafter, was this kind of inevitable that after we had films like Spider-Man and X-Men where 
people have been introduced to the concept of comic characters and of characters sharing a world potentially. What was was this inevitable that um, after they had success with say let's say the first couple of films and then it was leading to the Avengers? Do we do we are we surprised at the success the ongoing success after that and we've had the Infinity Saga and it's kind of continued up and Thanos has become part of the culture. It'd be interesting to see what you guys think about how it's actually been able to sustain itself. And now we're going into, I think we're in the fourth phase, I think of the MCU at the moment. Correct. And, yes. and kind of, <laughs> at what point do we, does, do they start to run out of kind of power with this? And, and it'd be interesting to see how we talk this through because at the moment, you know, we've, we've lost Robert Downey Jr. Now and Captain America has kind of transformed as far as which, which actor and which uh, characters playing that role we still have Thor for instance and we still have some of the the other characters but now we're bringing in new characters and it would appear as if Professor X has just appeared in a a Doctor Strange trailer I'm I'm just wondering do do we think this appetite is going to continue and are you surprised that we actually managed to get beyond say the first Avengers film and the appetite was still there so there's a lot of things to go but uh, Dominic do you want to maybe just kick us off as far as the success of Marvel to kind of move beyond, say, five films and then, a, you know, uh, an Avengers film and then they continue it. What, what are your thoughts on how, A, and how Marvel and um, Disney were able to do that, but then also just, I suppose, the, the audience interest in actually wanting to have a continued story like nothing they'd ever had before? Um, I, 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 did, I feel like I said it earlier again when, I, when it was, it takes a strong creative team with a vision. Um, the uh, the Avengers was able to work because they had a team that wanted to tell a story, and the the, the general audience reaction isn't just that it is an action movie, but that it's a fun action movie that you can bring your family to, right? Um, I think that as long as Marvel is able to continue continue to offer that idea of I can take my family to go see this and there won't be anything too graphic. Um, even the more mature movies like uh, the Winter Soldier or Civil, Civil War where it kind of delves into a little more serious topics. It won't be too gritty for my young child. Um, Marvel movies are for families. Um, I mean, they're for dedicated comic fans, but at the end of the day, I doubt that we will ever see a stop in comic book movies whether or not the mcu continues um but at least some continuation of it because not just the gross the the gross earnings from the box office of the avengers and uh, iron man and shang chi and spider-man those will all obviously go back to disney but one of the major things that people forget is toys and the toy side of that industry is the thing that is really bankrolling Disney. Um, Disney can make almost $2 billion with Avengers Endgame, um, but they can also make a billion dollars with the release of a new Spider-Man. And even if Sony continues to hold the rights on them, they will still continue to have 
the uh, toy rights. Uh, Marvel's, Marvel and Disney will still continue to have the toy rights. I doubt that we will ever see a stop in the MCU as long as they can keep on. Children can go to Target and buy a Spider-Man action figure. Yeah, I would agree with that. The, the toy market is insane. Um, and also a really interesting dimension of Marvel that in, uh, as, as we said earlier, Marvel's quite formulaic. And especially the first 10 or so films of the MCU are like very formulaic superhero origin, origin stories. Um, you meet the hero, there's a bit of a falter in their faith in themselves. And then there's a massive threat that they have to fight. They face off with each other and then it doesn't go so well. Then somebody comes in and inspires them and then they win in the end, right? Like that's like the formula for, for Marvel films and most superhero films that, that we do get out. But recently we've been seeing some changes with the formula um, with like their, their big um, uh, amalgamated films like Avengers and um, through Endgame, all of those kind of things. And then with the releases on Disney Plus, we're getting new cinematic television. Um, and the cinematic television, I think, is so interesting to this this conversation because we're not getting TV shows, we're getting cinematic television and they're part of the cinematic universe. And what I mean by cinematic television is it's not a 30 minute spot during prime time on like ABC or NBC or something. It's films released specifically for streaming that have run times as long as the story needs. And you can have a 39 minute episode or an hour and six minute episode of the same series because it comes down to whatever that episode needs to tell the story. So that impacts the content as well and that changes the formula. Um, some might say that some of these episodes or some of these series are just films that are broken up into six or eight episodes, but but I think they're more than that because they are self-contained episodes. Um, it's just a really interesting thing to think about. But coming back around to the toy market, that impacts the content because with, for example, um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they went into some serious social issues of today and they really met the cultural moment in a way that no Marvel film, under Disney at least, has done before. Um, we had questions of, of race and police violence against um, people of color in the U.S. and the question of what it is to be a Black Captain America. Um, and those are really, really huge kind of social concepts and cultural concepts that Marvel is now bringing, as Dom says, to a family audience um, on this streaming service. And that ties in with the toys because Marvel isn't a toy market in china like star wars is and marvel is succeeding disney is succeeding within marvel to talk about social issues that they cannot show in star wars because they're worried about their toy sales with star wars but they're not worried about their toy sales with marvel and they're they're changing their content based on where are they going to get the most money out of these toys 
And I find that absolutely fascinating as a development to come out of the MCU. Um, I want to just piggyback off that real quick. Uh, mm-hmm. Me and Vaughn were talking about recently um, the uh, Black Panther movie and how it was a mm-hmm. s- strong uh black lead and kind of uh revolutionary civil rights it talks about um a lot of political discourse and uh i had postured to her like i wonder if disney specifically didn't do what we all kind of theorized was going to happen with the uh stormtrooper rebellion where um finn would lead a stormtrooper rebellion my what I was thinking was, I wonder if Disney didn't do that because he was a black man and they just had a black man starring movie where uh, there was a revel, like the idea of uh, the revolution in Wakanda. I wonder if they didn't do a black stormtrooper leading a revolution because now that Gracie mentioned it, the Chinese market for Star Wars. Um, I know. Wait, that. I think it is. Yeah, I, I, I kind of believe that is that or jj abrams just can't write so (laughs) that that too too. um but i i think it's really interesting how this this toy dimension is something that seldom gets mentioned within the mcu at least i mean we talk about it constantly with star wars because george lucas famously made that that deal with kenner toys so the idea of toys with star wars is always there but with marvel it's really interesting that it's not as much of a market um, in in China, and that directly impacts the content that we actually get out of the MCU. Um, and part of why I think it it is so successful for American markets because it's not it's not kind of being very careful with my wording here. Um, it's not being curtailed by concerns of an international market. It's more for an American audience than many of the other Disney IPs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what, what's interesting is as we see um, Disney kind of trying to grapple with telling social issues or even just trying to expand who their characters are. We saw that recently with uh, Eternals and they had a gay character as an actual character in the film and you see him with a husband and with children and you contrast that to something like Star Wars where I think they had sort of the first gay kiss in episode nine but it was like very kind of in the background and easy to edit out kind of thing and um that it's interesting when we're talking about international markets um there are certain international markets that will just not um allow that kind of thing um at least not without edits so it's an interesting contrast that we have between star wars and marvel which itself was going to be a kind of conversation around when we think of modern cinema it essentially starts with star wars and what came after it and there's a kind of clear demarcation in cinema as a result of George Lucas's first film. And of course, now they're both Disney properties. And what was interesting is that while we were, you know, people who, who, who are into these kind of things, you know, were very interested in say the first Iron Man film because it looked interesting. 
if you look at something like the first the box office of the first Iron Man compared to the box office of Episode Seven of Star Wars, I mean, it, Iron Man dwindles in comparison to, to Episode Seven because there was a a larger cultural cachet of what Episode Seven meant and what it meant to cinema goers. And it, it's funny that that trilogy essentially flamed out and struggled to tell a cohesive um, narrative story over those three films. Whereas Marvel, starting from a, a blank slate, was able to curate this 20 plus film uh, narrative, which has kept going and has now gone into um, TV as well. And now you've got these kind of two streams of Marvel on Disney Plus, plus the films that are in the cinema. And you compare that to something like Star Wars, which has kind of almost completely now just diverged into television. And it's interesting that that has come along um, as streaming has come along, obviously, because now people, companies have their own platforms. And it's also come off the, the back end of the golden age of television, where television itself, when you look at American broadcasting, had moved away from some, you know, ABC or NBC as being, you know, that's the home of, of the, the drama of today kind of living and you've got HBO and AMC and you have the success of Sopranos and Breaking Bad and so there was a there was a earlier period where television became more celebrated and became um, more accepted in the culture that you would have stories being told there that people would want to tell and you have actors now appearing in a season or two of a limited TV series and yet at the same time we now have um IP moving into that as well, where Ewan McGregor will go and do a limited series on Obi-Wan Kenobi or, you know, whichever Marvel character will have a limited series. And, and so we are, we are, we've moved away from you have film stars and you have TV stars, although you still obviously have that, to now we have people signed up for content for a run of whatever kind it is. And it's, it's no longer the George Clooney has managed to break away from television and made it into the films. It's not a great success. It's now, oh, we, we're going to have someone split their time between a limited series and then they'll go and do a film. But actually, as far as kind of cultural residence is concerned, it, it's actually going to be the limited TV series or the Marvel TV series or the Star Wars TV series, which is actually going to have a far greater impact on their career than going off and, and making their, their independent film that they're hoping will have an Oscar picture or whatever it is. So I, I find it fascinating that at a time where we've had comic book and we've had IP kind of come together and um, sort of move what cinema is and what, what uh, content is, at the same time that happened to coalesce at, at round when technology was just moving to a point where people were streaming rather than sticking on ABC to watch a an hour-long TV show that had, you know, 20 minutes of adverts. Um, so I, I think it, it's a fascinating kind of move together that you have television in the early part of the 21st century taken more serious, seriously, and now that has sort of been moved into, well, as well as television being taken more seriously, you've now got IP television being taken more seriously. What would you say to... Uh, you know, a few years ago, um, you had uh, Sam Mendes at a conference and he was saying a little depressingly that the director's role in you know, cinema, a major cinema that gets uh, seen by wide audiences and wide release is becoming very, very limited. And like, he's also tracing the same 
uh, trends that uh, Simon was just talking about, but saying it in a kind of foreboding way that, you know, now in order to make the kinds of things that he wants to make, he'll have to go to television to do it. And then you have um, Christopher Nolan, who's trying to make his uh, Oppenheimer movie, which again mm-hmm. is like, a, like a, you know, an 100 million movie about one person, self-contained, going to take a lot to financing to, to get it to, to be made. But many people are kind of saying, well, this, this is the kind of last of its kind because, uh, you know, the trends, trends being the way they are, you know, in the 1990s, those sort of three grades of movies, blockbusters, middle budget movies were the, that had big budgets for actors and then little, little movies. And it was it tended to be those kind of middle budget movies that were both well heralded and won the Oscars and had, had a big audience. But those movies are kind of being crowded out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the death of the kind of sleepless in Seattle movie, but also 20 years later, the death of, you know, Oppenheimer movies, the death of um, the death of Gladiator, you know, movies like that. So what, what would you say to those kinds of? Those well, I think Oppenheimer is a really interesting example because uh, Christopher Nolan, who has been pushing cinema, and not just cinema, but also actually making cinema on film, he's been as, as kind of vocal about that as anyone. His relationship has been exclusively with Warner Brothers. Um, to the point where you just imagine that his his next run of films would continue to be backed by Warner Brothers, but actually his new film is not. And I think it's Universal that has has Oppenheimer. And that's because he, he essentially had a fallout with Warner Brothers, not only because he felt that maybe they didn't uh, push his last film as well as they could have, but I think more importantly, um, Warner Brothers essentially took their 2021 slate of films and said that we're going to release this piece simultaneously um, on HBO Plus as well as in the cinema and he and some other um, filmmakers were very unhappy about this and felt that cinematic releases were being um, destroyed by Warner Brothers and he said some particularly unkind things about the HBO Plus um, platform itself and so when he had this idea for his next film he immediately started shopping it around and it, it happened to be um, I think it was Universal who ended up taking taking the rights on that one and so you you have a again you have an example of someone who is a filmmaker who wants to tell these big stories and he's one of the few that's still given a budget and as you said Toby more and more adult dramas are now you know people are moving into television to tell those and you have people who let's say um, a young director comes along in the early 90s well maybe the kind of next thing is for them to get higher and higher budgets of their independent films um, and kind of move along into studio system in that way. Whereas now young directors who have some sort of success after maybe just one film, they will be immediately given the keys to right, go and make a, a Star Wars film or a Star Trek film or, or a, a Marvel film. And so their opportunities have kind of split from you're going to make, you know, 10 more films for cinematic release to your, you make your indie film, then you get your Star Wars film. And then if you're successful, maybe you can have like a Ryan Johnson type career where you're able to kind of carve out um, as something like a Knives Out and, and get success that way. Although just, just funnily enough, Knives Out, the, the next two films there are going straight to Netflix rather than cinematic releases. And 
I, I think it's it's harder and harder to um, know where adult dramas kind of are going to live um, outside of the kind of much smaller films that we're, we're seeing, as I mentioned earlier, something like Power, Power of the Dog or, or something like that, you know, that's the, the kind of 80 or 100 million pound equivalent of, of, of that is maybe just doesn't exist anymore, except for very, very minor cases such as a Christopher Nolan film. And then even that is, is because he's a rare case of someone who should be able to bring in an international box office return of five, six, seven hundred million. Um, so, yeah, so I, I suppose we're, we're in a bit of a we're very much in a transition period and it, we're, we're in a transition period across where multiple things are happening at once. And, and it just so happened that the pandemic accelerated that process where HBO Max um, took in a bunch of films uh, on its streaming service that it wouldn't have had otherwise. And that is only going to kind of in increase the possibility that for most studios, they're either going to have to um, create their own streaming service like Disney Plus has done, like HBO Max has done for Warner Brothers, or they're going to have to just sell content um, to streamers in order to recoup money, which I think is what Sony has done. I think they partnered with Netflix on that. Um, so we, we're at a fascinating transition uh, period. I don't know if anyone else has any, any thoughts on this, or if anyone is still awake after listening to this <laughs> um, Yeah, I think it's interesting what you said about uh, Ryan Johnson and um, Knives Out, because it is getting a Netflix release, but I believe that they are also getting full cinematic releases too. I believe they will be going to movie change. Um, are they getting a full one or is it more for limited? I haven't read it up to be perfectly honest. I just assumed with Netflix, they would just give it a limited one so it could do the Oscar push and then. From my understanding, it was it was getting a full cinematic release. But again, I might be mistaken. Um, oh, interesting. We will probably see by the end of the year whether or not uh, which one of us is right. And right. <laughs> um, but yeah, from my understanding, um, it was getting a at least some sort of cinematic release, I would be very surprised if it didn't do a full cinematic release, especially seeing as the uh, crazy success of the first movie. Yeah. Yeah, I would also be shocked by that. Um, but again, with like, I think you hit right on it, Simon, that the pandemic has accelerated a lot of this. And so much of the last two years has been... Um, delays on releases or um, very abrupt kind of moments of, oh, it's only going to be on Disney Plus or HBO Max or what have you. Um, and that, I mean, tying that into MCU, uh, they had a lawsuit about this. Scarlett Johansson sued the MCU, uh, sued, sued Disney for the way they handled the release of Black Widow. Um, which is the the everything about Black Widow is kind of a tragedy. I mean, it's a really yeah. good film. It's very enjoyable, but it should have been released 10 years ago. It's a first, a phase one kind of first formula dis, uh, Marvel film. And they really just did a disservice by throwing her a kind of token film 12 uh, years yeah. into this. I mean, that definitely goes back to what uh, we were talking about earlier with toy sales and Ike Perlmutter mm -hmm. basically saying she's a woman why would anybody want to buy an action figure of her why would we make a movie about a woman if we can't sell action figures about it um a woman and, doll yeah I know right they're not action figures they're dolls come on um 
but yeah it does kind of go back to that whole thing where it's a tragedy that happened because that character deserves better scarlett johansson deserves better absolutely and like more power to her sue disney go for it babe we love that um and it was a fair lawsuit and disney absolutely kind of made her seem like the bad guy for being like you breached my contract and they were like well you're not being very kind about the pandemic and it's like you have a 11 billion dollars like you have all the money you you be kind about literally anything um so yeah i mean far be it for me to support the super rich getting even richer but putting disney in its place like do it babe we love that (laughs) um on this question of kind of like where does where does cinema go from here right yeah like i think it's a great question um i do know that a lot of filmmakers at the moment are realizing that cgi looks pretty terrible when it's digitally uh rendered and they're they're looking to do more films on actual film um not as like, like, I think we, we've gotten to this kind of moment within Hollywood where it's like the Jurassic Park moment, right? Of like, like we knew that we could and we didn't stop to think whether we should. And we've, we've had a lot of CGI that looks pretty shit in recent mm. years when technology should be at a point that it's like at its best, right? But one of the best looking CGIs of the last 15 years was Detective Pikachu. Like... <laughs> The, the, I know it sounds silly, but like the rendering on Detective Pikachu, um, it's incredible. And it looks lifelike, not because it's CGI where it's digitally rendered, but because it was um, CGI on film and it has that kind of crackle and it has the kind of lifelike movement that, that makes it seem more real. So the technology kind of surpassed the actual form Um, of films and we have some filmmakers and directors saying no we need to return to film it may be kind of a prior technology but it's a superior technology for the art that we want to create and if we're going back to film that inherently to me would would inspire more cinematic releases um hopefully and there there are some some cinemas who are switching to film and like projector reels instead of using like just the disc, right? So that gives me some hope in in a kind of return to cinemas in a post like CGI digital world. But at the same time, I don't know if I've gone on this whole rant on on impressions before, but I'll keep it very brief. In in 2019, the Paramount decrees were overturned. Um, And the Paramount decrees were a Supreme Court decision from 1948 that broke the vertical integration system. And what that means is that, very simply, um, studios could no longer own both production and distribution of their films. So a studio could not own their cinema um, or any cinema where their films were screened. And the goal of the Paramount Decree was to allow for space for independents to come in, um, get their films in regional cinemas, get people seeing them for not exorbitant 
amounts, um, trying to break into the monopolies that studio heads, like the five big studios had over production and distribution. And it worked for a really long time. And like that ushers in the kind of big epics of, of the 50s of the studios kind of latching on to whatever final remnants they could have of power in Hollywood by just throwing money at these big epic films. And then leading into the 60s where we had all of these independent creators and um, the experimental films and all of that. So in 2019, um, under the the Supreme Court ruled that the Paramount decrees no longer stand up because they don't include streaming services. And one of the studio heads, at least one of the studio heads that was named in the lawsuit doesn't exist anymore. So they said like, oh, it's defunct. It doesn't work anyway, but they didn't replace it. And that's a terrifying thing because that that paved the way for these streaming services like Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and um, Amazon to purchase MGM, which we haven't mentioned Amazon yet at all. And I'm very impressed we haven't, but Amazon purchasing MGM is a terrifying kind of thing. And that happened, um, I believe it was last year in 2021 that they acquired all of these properties and they acquired um, the Wizard of Oz, which really pissed off Disney. And I am convinced that Bezos bought MGM specifically so Disney couldn't have Wizard of Oz because they've been trying for it for over a century and they just can't, uh, which is why we have really shit films like Oz the Great and Powerful because they have to go off of like the Frank L. Baum books and not the actual like Wizard of Oz from 1939. And it just like hilarious, absolutely hilarious that, that Disney can't get their hands on Wizard of Oz. But anyway, um, where was I going with any of this? Um, <laughs> cinema today. Yes. I think like there are so many things up in the air at the moment that there are these seeds of kind of hope that we are going to return to cinemas. And I really hope that we do because cinematography and sound mixing and um, lighting are all sciences. Like they're arts. Absolutely, but they're also sciences for when you are sitting in a theater to get the best acoustics or to get exactly how the creators wanted you to hear this scene and feel this scene in complete darkness with strangers that you're having this amazing kind of artistic, beautiful moment with a piece of art with like culture and you're experiencing it with other people in this dark room where the only job of that room is to get you to feel something about the film that you were watching and forget about everything else outside of it. Like, I think we should absolutely go back to cinemas. Um, so but I, just I think that there are some things. So I was gonna ask, so for as far as going back to cinemas, do you think that will include adult dramas? So for instance, Martin Scorsese, his last film, The Irishman, was done for two hundred million on Netflix, and it was only because Netflix were the only people willing to give him that amount of money for for that story. And his next film, Killers of the Flower Moon, I think, is coming out on Apple, which again is costing two hundred million because no studio would give them that kind of budget. I, I I very much agree that I would love this idea of us being able to go and see a, a new Scorsese film or a new, you know, whichever film it is you like to see. On a, on a big screen and you know engage with it with, in the darkness with an audience but do you think we are 
going to actually have that in five or ten years' time? Or do you think if cinematic experience is going to prevail, do we think it's going to be the shared experience of watching Spider-Man or watching James Bond and we're kind of limited to it being like IP rather than, you know, the Scorsese film will appear on your, your streamer rather than actually go into your cinema? I... I'm I'm going to say something probably controversial, but I don't think there's a problem with that. I think that culture is moving on and that's what culture does. And I think we are moving away from those kind of more serious films like The Irishman, um, which I didn't even see spoiler but um i i think i think we're moving away from that style of film but not necessarily at the fault of other films i think it's because culture is changing and audiences are changing and the things that people want are changing um i think we're in a really fucking hard time period right now i think people are miserable and i don't think they want serious seriously kind of social issuey, social problem films at the moment. I think they want to relax. I think we want escapism. I think we're entering a 1950s era of just, we want escapism. We don't want to have to think when we go to the cinema. And that that's not for everybody at all, but I think it's for a lot of people that what we want and what we enjoy is like Marvel or Star Wars, or even if you don't enjoy them, you can agree that they're like, fine films mm -hmm. and they, they hit marks and they look nice um frequently they have great soundtracks there are actors you know that are in them and you're probably going to see them with your friends because like as i said earlier it's it's an experience that you can have for 15 years with a group of friends so i think like in terms of the the content of the films that are going to be in cinemas and on streaming I think it's changing not because Marvel is succeeding, but because there's a fundamental change in just the socio socio-cultural kind of moment that we're in. It it sucks oh, right absolutely. now. We don't want to be reminded. I just want to. I just want to ask a, a follow-up uh, question yeah. to that because if, because we do bring up the sociology, right? I think the mm. the post-war period and like after the 1950s, but. The post-war period of the 1950s and 60s, 70s and 80s, I think like there's a lot of balkanization in terms of what people are consuming. I think you can see this in schools and like the media from that from that time period. So the different cliques, like uh, you know, like goths, the people into rap, like you know, just a, a kind of rainbow of different groups, and they're 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 engaging in different kinds of uh, genres and different types of films, different types of directors, and it's a, there's a variety there. But I, I do think that what we're perhaps seeing is a kind of monoculture, and uh, perhaps you know you also have like sociologic. You have like the the rise of the nerd, right? So like nerds were something in the periods before. I think before all of us were born, but you know now more people go to universities. Now more people. Uh, not necessarily read comic books, but can appreciate that kind of um, 
entertainment in in cinemas but what you are losing is a kind of variety in the culture not only not only the kind of middle brow high culture of Martin Scorsese or whatever but also a kind of variety in 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 cinema what would you say to that I, th- I think that's an interesting kind of perspective. Um, I don't think that holds for the 50s. I think the 50s are pretty. I mean, oh, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Like, I try to make that yeah. it doesn't hold for the 50s. And in many ways, it doesn't yeah. hold for the 60s until the kind of post 60s. You know, yeah. Experimental, like very late 60s kind of thing. Yeah. I think. I think the fifties is kind of where we're at at the moment where there is a more mainstream culture. There's more um, or rather less plurality um, as you're saying. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I think there are still other things for offer. Like um, there, there are other films. I don't know. Um, What's something that just came out recently that so I mean, I was, like, so what I was going to bring up was if you look, so as well as looking at your serious Scorsese films, you have something like West Side Story, the 2021 film, yeah. which was which was a big production, cost 100 million, and it's been a big failure for them um, financially as far as the box office return. Critically, it's done very well. It's had some Oscar nominations. It's done very well with the critics. But there's a film which you could pin your hat on and go, right, Spielberg is making a remake of a beloved film and it should be it should have some sort of audience and it just failed at the box office In the Heights was a little bit different in the sense that it had a same day release I think on HBO Max as well so even even though that wasn't again didn't succeed at the box office you could at least say well maybe the people who wanted to see it watched it online rather than watched in the cinema but I, I, I do find it interesting that we, we are kind of finding it harder and harder to maybe find the success stories outside of IP. Sorry, Vaughn, you were, you were saying. Okay. Well, um, some people would argue that that is IP. But, okay, so the, so many things yeah. just came up. Um, so many things just came up that, like, both of those examples are musicals. And the, the first one I thought of was Cats. Um, <laughs> and... All three of those are musicals, right? And they're a genre to themselves. And before that, a few years ago, we had La La Land. And when La La Land came out, people were like, oh, are we returning to a 50s style kind of movie musical uh, era? And all three of those examples in the Heights, um, Cats and West Side Story, I think are very bold answers to that, that no, we are not. That because that is not what people want at the moment. And I think culture is struggling at the moment. Hollywood is struggling at the moment to find something that isn't Marvel or isn't, well, isn't Marvel because Star Wars did very well with box office, but didn't among fans so much. Um, I think they're struggling to find something that isn't like Marvel, but I don't think that's Marvel's fault. You know what I mean? And I also think that we're in a post-critic era. Um, I don't think I, I don't think critical acclaim means anything at the at, at the moment. Um, um, it's, good, it's good you said that after Adam was on this uh, podcast. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. you're redundant. Uh, uh, um, yeah. 
I, but I, I think, I think we kind of are in, in the sense of like a Roger Ebert critic or like a um, Bosley Crowther of the the forties and fifties. Like we're, we're kind of past that at the moment. Um, People turn more to like Twitter or to their friends. Like the only person that I trust with my recommendations is Dom because Dom knows me so well and knows what I like and what I don't like. And if, if Dom tells me to watch something, it's the next thing I watch. And I don't even, I mean, I'm a film historian and I don't even read reviews for films anymore because I just, I, I think a lot has been, well, okay, we could do a whole episode on just like critics and how film criticism has changed in the last hundred years. Um, I'm not going to do that right now, but I think we're in a post-critic era uh, for film. And I think all of this is happening alongside MCU, but I don't know if it's necessarily the fault of MCU. I think MCU is just succeeding where other things aren't. And what succeeds about MCU is up for debate, I think. But I think it really comes down to, as Dom has said throughout this, and it's like a love for the product that we kind of forget. You have these massive creative teams who who are doing a really wonderful job translating hundreds of issues of a character down and distilling it down into the character that they can portray on the screen and get the audience to love this character so much that they remember most things about this character for 14 years after only seeing them on screen for like a total of what, like two hours in some cases, not even. Like Hannibal Buress was in um spider-man no way home for legitimately he had like three lines but you remember who that character is and he's just he just like works in the school you know what i mean um so i think these these are really good questions to ask together and simultaneously um and i don't i don't really have answers for them because it's really hard to make a kind of conjecture about what's happening in hollywood in a given moment while you're in that moment but I do think so, that what's happening, <laughs> it is hard to do it, but if I have to make a, a statement, I would say that I think Marvel is just successful and I don't think it hurts other things. I think the criticisms against Marvel from like Scorsese and I think Ridley Scott maybe also said something about Marvel recently um, yeah, because the last duel uh, was very well. Francis Ford Coppola had the most rudest way of expressing that. Absolutely, yeah. I I think they're lashing out against something that's successful, but not something that's like hurting their own careers. You know what I mean? Like, Dom, do you have anything Um, to add on that? I just want to pop back to what you said about the death of the critic. Um, Mm. uh, 2016's uh, Suicide Squad has a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes right now, and its box office was uh, $746 million. And the reviewer score is, the audience score is 59%, but still $750 million is more than most studios earn in a year. <laughs> and Suicide, yeah, Squad was able to, Suicide Squad was able to do that on a shit movie. <laughs> a quite shit movie. But again that kind of goes back to what you were saying about a strong creative team David Ayer had a vision for that movie and then 
Warner Brothers got scared when they saw Guardians of the Galaxy release, and then they gave it to a trailer house to recut the movie, and then they had David Ayer cut the movie, and then they combined the two cuts, and there was no cohesive story there. I don't know. It's it's such a weird microcosm of the whole industry. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes and not Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Warner Brothers being afraid of this other mega movie franchise and failing on purpose. They are the reason that movie failed. The same thing can be said about Justice League. That movie failed because Warner Brothers was afraid and they, well, obviously um, the tragedy that happened with uh, uh, what's his name? Zack Snyder's. Yeah, Zack Snyder's uh, daughter. Absolute tragedy. But Warner Brothers stumbled and failed by their own account and then they can try and blame anybody else, but they're failing while Marvel is succeeding because they do not have strong creators. Yeah, in, in some ways, Warner Brothers is almost the more interesting case study in all of this because at mm. the time where Marvel was coming along with MCU, Batman Begins had already been out and they were undertaking this Batman trilogy of films, this Dark Knight trilogy, which was very successful with, with fans and the critics, but was... Christopher Nolan's attempts, first of all, telling one and then two and then sort of being dragged back for a third. But he, he was telling a trilogy of, of, he was, you know, it's like Star Wars, you know, he had an idea of what story he wanted to tell. And obviously that, that changed with the death of Heath Ledger, but it, it still a contained series of three films. And at the same time, you had Marvel sort of taking off in the other direction, which was an interconnected universe. And so by the time DC had seen out The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, Marvel was had already established what modern blockbuster cinema was going to be, and DC tried to counter by basically just immediately throwing itself into a similar type of, of universe. It had a Man of Steel um, film, which was produced by Nolan but made by Zack Snyder, and then they just kind of immediately fell into right now we've got to bring all the characters together and Wonder Woman and whoever's got to appear in this film, and then another film later you've got flash and everybody else and so rather than this more organic process of building up five characters and then putting those five characters together into a shared film dc kind of went oh we're, we're kind of behind now let's just skip a couple of steps and just kind of throw everyone together and i think a combination of that plus the fact that i don't think Zack snyder's view of what a comic book movie is is necessarily it necessarily fits in with what how Marvel have, have created a more family-friendly universe. And in, in some ways, Zack Snyder is more of an independent like voice compared to the people who get, get to make Marvel films. You know, you can criticize Zack Snyder, but his films, unless they're kind of edited out of his control, they are what he wants to tell, and they are at least interesting in, in how he wants to tell a story. And now we're kind of left at a point where DC are kind of almost started again to some degree where their their stories have become more individual and so the the Aquaman film is less connected to the Aquaman film that, uh, sort of the Aquaman character that kind of came before it and uh, in the in the DC sort of shared films that had come before it. so they DC is now in a position where it's it's got the Batman which is coming out but that the Batman is basically in a different universe, a different multiverse compared to what we're going to see with the Batgirl TV series that has Michael Keaton appearing in it and he's going to appear in the Flash films, I think. So already, whereas you can kind of plot out in a linear way Marvel going right, you go A, B, C, D, and then eventually get into a multiverse. 
DC kind of kind of has fallen about the place trying to fit its characters and trying to fit different aspects, different versions of the same characters into something that hasn't always been successful and they've kind of stumbled along. And now they're sort of in a multiverse as well now, but not in any real connected way, just in a, we haven't really been able to successfully build a united set of films. So now we're almost going to be telling individual stories and you can kind of pick and choose and you can watch The Batman and it's not connected, as far as we know, to any other DC film. And I'm sure you can watch whatever whatever DC films are coming out now and you probably don't need to have seen the Justice League film. And I, I, it's a really... I don't want to say one it's as easy as one it's a, one studio has succeeded and one has failed, but if you were to categorise it, it kind of is because DC just stumbled one one turn after another and it has had successes. I mean, I think Aquaman earned over a billion dollars at the global box office. I mean, that's a huge box office return, but it's it just doesn't have the, the cultural cachet that Marvel's been able to achieve and there clearly isn't the same plan and... Who knows what, what kind of comes next with, with DC. So it's, it's a fascinating counterpoint to look at DC and what they've achieved slash not achieved in the, in the last 15 years. Yeah, but Simon, uh, I don't know what the, these movies are doing at the box office uh, in terms of like, because I, I actually haven't seen a lot of these uh, DC movies, but uh, but I, I know that part of the reason why I haven't seen them is because you know, against what Vaughan was saying, is like because they were critically panned movies. You know, because I read, um, I read the the Dark Knight Returns, that that uh, Batman versus Superman uh, comic book, and I thought that's just one of the, probably one of my favorite books ever. I thought it was a great book, and I was looking forward actually to watching uh, the movie. And then I heard the movie was bad. I didn't, I didn't go and see it. But what are those movies doing at the box? box office if the critic you know is no longer uh, important the fact that those movies have been panned wouldn't be that important for their box office success so why is it that they don't have the cultural cachet is it because they're just not doing that well at the box office um i think a combination of box office plus the people who are seeing that I, I don't think they're i think there is a there are some people who really enjoy, say, the Zack Snyder films, but I think that that is maybe more of a hardcore set of Zack Snyder fans rather than necessarily mainstream cinema goers. And I think there has probably been a rejection of, say, the Zack Snyder verse by the general public compared to um, sort of the general embrace of the Marvel tone. I, I, as far as kind of cultural cachet, I, I guess there's an element of the fact that maybe. Marvel simply has a formula for success and a way to introduce characters and introduce its films together that DC has not been able to do. Um, maybe if you took it as a standalone thing, you know, you took, I don't know, Ant-Man and, you know, The Flash or, or you know, a DC, maybe they're both similarly interesting, but you'd be more interested in watching Ant-Man because you like Paul Rudd or you, you're interested in seeing how the AMCU stories continue, whereas maybe you just don't have as much interest in seeing how the DC universe continues or, you know, the DC actor involved is kind of less interesting to you or you simply just don't like the trailer or you've decided that one cinematic universe is enough to keep up with, you know, maybe there is for general public, maybe they don't want to have three or four different cinematic universes to keep up with at once. 
I, I'm not sure I have a specific answer on that, but it does seem as if, generally speaking, not just in box office, but just in terms of um, conversations between humans, I don't think DC characters have had the same success. I, I'm not sure how many people could, on the street, tell you who the bad guy in the D, in the sort of DC universe is on the cinematic front. Whereas I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Thanos, you know, and I, I, I don't know if 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 the the DC universe is just just not connected, be that in tone, be that in um, sort of accumulating films over a period of time and, and creating characters that people are interested in. I think, I think quite... from a critical standpoint, The Winter Soldier is a good movie, right? Um, yeah, I, I would say that Avengers Two is a good movie. I didn't really like the Lost Avengers, but the critics like the Lost Avengers movie. There's a lot of uh, critically well-received movies in the Marvel universe and not there are. critically well-received movies in the, in the DC universe. And as honestly, you know, the, the DC universe has movies making 600 million, which isn't bad at all, but they, they aren't developing the same cultural cachet in part. Yeah. It must be because it's just not as well put together, not only from a... Yeah external mm-hmm. engagement standpoint in terms of their link to um, young people and families, as has been said uh, on this podcast, but also from like, you know, like how good are these movies, you know? I, uh, on you go, sorry. I would love to just uh, jump in and say um, recently in the last year and a half, uh, DC has created two of the most extremely well-received properties uh, in comic book movie uh, recent memory with um, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad and James Gunn's Peacemaker, uh, which has been renewed for season two. Peacemaker is now the, I believe, most viewed um, HBO Max original TV show uh, to date, um, renewed for season two. Uh, I think... Again, I, 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 I feel like I'm really harping on here. Um, when DC gave James Gunn the green light to make Peacemaker, or uh, not Peacemaker, um, the Suicide Squad, he went up to them and said, do you have any plans for these characters? Can I kill off anyone that I want? And they said, you have total free reign here. You can do whatever you like. And it is the most well-received DC movie since man of steel and the peacemaker tv show has just been uh following that trend of warner brothers totally hands off now um and it being extremely well received i think it really does go back to an extremely strong creative team um peacemaker is (laughs) peacemaker hasn't had a consistent comic run since the 70s 80s i believe it was he wasn't even a dc character up until uh their per- uh, Charleston Comics was purchased by DC. The fact that we have a Peacemaker TV show with John Cena is absolutely insane. And it really does just go back to all it takes is a strong creative team with a vision of what to do. And just, uh, is it, uh, uh, who's the director of Aquaman? I don't want to. Uh, Aquaman was that? Um, oh, uh, yeah, I, I forget his name as well. Um, Jeremy, not Jeremy, what is it? Um, uh, one second. Um, yeah, James Wan. James Wan. James Wan. There you go. Yes. 
Um, James Wan's Aquaman was reasonably well received because James Wan had a vision for it. Um, going back to Suicide Squad 2016, there was no vision for it. And as soon as you get that strong director and hands-off uh, studio, you have people, non-comic book fans and non-comic uh, book movie fans, um, from what I've seen, have had a much stronger reaction to the Suicide Squad than Shang-Chi, Black Widow, uh, even The Avengers. It is a movie made for a mass market rather than made for a comic book fan. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, absolutely. I've not actually seen Peacemaker, but I've, I've seen the critical response to it. It's been very positive. And as you say, The Suicide Squad, which James Gunn directed, was well received. Again, it was an interesting one because it was, I believe it was released online with HBO Max in America at the same time as it was released in the box office. If you just look at the box office numbers and you know that it would be a huge box office failure because it only made $167 million compared to its budget of $185 plus. You've got marketing costs and everything else. So if you were just as far as cultural cachet, I don't know how many normal cinema goers, certainly outside the US and even people in the US, have a strong connection to that film, even though it was well made compared to even something like Shang-Chi, which, you know, is not the best Marvel film that's ever been made, but is a perfectly decent film. But again, probably had a, even during a pandemic, probably had a bit more of an insertion in, into the, the general public, I would say, than something like Suicide Squad, which if you look at the comparisons, I think the Suicide Squad had a generally better critical response than uh, Shang-Chi did. Um, so I, I suppose it, it's we are a little bit at the point where DC have a bit of a darker tone in a lot of their films and TV series and Marvel have a bit more of a um, PG friendly approach to their uh, content. So again, you know, you are kind of comparing apples and oranges a bit, but I think to kind of close off what we've been saying, I, I think we are kind of living through this storm right now where we are transitioning between, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you had film stars and you had films that went to theatrical release and then you had a you know three month or six month window and then it went to a dvd and then you earned extra money that way and then eventually it turned out you know, went to television 18 months later whereas we're kind of moving further and further away from that being the norm and um maybe it, i assume it will be easier to review these last 10 years and the times coming up when we have some distance from it and as we were discussing on our last podcast with adam Neyman, when we were discussing about what made 1999 an interesting time to to discuss and why you know the films were interesting, why that time period in general was interesting. And again, it was something that you touched on, Vaughn, which is just in general, once you step back from something and have some ability to kind of view it slightly further away and get some greater context, you are able to see, you know, see the woods for the, the trees type of thing. And um, I think it'll be fascinating, the, the conversations that people will be having about um, theatrical releases and, and cinema and content and IP what will they be having about that in 20 or 30 years time when they're looking back on this period now rather than attempting to live through it and trying trying to negotiate with our thoughts where you know we we could have been having roughly the same conversations two or three years ago prior to a pandemic coming along and then that accelerating things so um it, it it's interesting to think um how we're going to kind of view everything and um when we step back a bit and um, we are coming up to two hours now is there any kind of final thoughts we want to, to draw up either on uh, the MCU itself, or just kind of anything that we, we've talked about now or haven't talked about before, before we close up. Yeah, yeah, and the period where 
uh, Mark Hamill will forever be digitized into <laughs> Star Wars movies, and no actors will be able to get jobs. Uh, they'll be reflecting on this period. Uh, Yes, it's very true. It's very true. I look forward to digital Mark Hamill appearing in all content from here on out. Um, Vaughn, you were quite um, vocal in your supports just in general of Disney. Is that something you'd like to just add anything more to? Or um, Yes, I love the mouse. The mouse is my lord and savior. Um, no, I think as as much as I don't want to praise Disney. I want to, I, I do want to throw a bone to the, the creative team for MCU. I think that really is what sets it apart. I think it's, especially if we are juxtaposing it to DC, the, the DCEU, um, they're dark films, like content and just visually, like you can't see shit in those films. And they're, <laughs> They're not very fun. Like, I don't enjoy those films. I've, I've only admittedly seen a couple DC films, but I was such a DC kid. Like, I didn't like Marvel very much at all when I was a kid. I loved, like, Justice League and, like, Batman the Animated Series. Like, I was all about DC um, animated shows. So when they started fucking with my DC in the films, I was just like i don't want to watch this anymore and then the thing that really cinched it for me was um as as you highlighted simon the trailer for justice league they used this terrible cover of come together for the trailer and it just upset me to a point (laughs) that i was like i don't want to watch this movie and i think they missed a mark with like trying to make it so dark and gritty and like oh we have this alternate kind of world that mimics yours and it's dark and scary and um we need superheroes like that compared to like guardians of the galaxy they don't that's not the same audience they're not targeting the same audience but dc kind of thinks that they are and i think disney just does it so well the, the MCU is so well targeted and it's also there's a multiplicity to it right that you have extremely funny films like not extreme but very funny films like Guardians of the Galaxy and Ant-Man but then you also have kind of um, the more I guess serious or like like female leading films or like like you know what I mean like there are, there are different types going on and now especially with the Disney Plus um series you have like loki being off the wall and hawkeye being a christmas series and wandavision being one of the most original things i've ever seen so i think i think they're just better at marketing i think they're better at making content out of comic books um and maybe that's due to the the history of marvel how they spend so much time just honing their craft and the quality of their characters and their stories and and their not at the time but ips um intellectual properties i i don't know if we can say exactly the same for dc um i don't think i would and and i think that makes it a really interesting kind of comparison to to juxtapose them i think it's not that marvel's succeeding it's that warner brothers is failing in finding their audience 
in marketing towards their audience or even just making a film that people want to see at the moment. I'm, people might be really angry with what I'm saying right now, but like, like I said earlier, I don't think people want to see a world where everything's shit and it's dark and it's scary and there are no jokes or the jokes are bad. Like nobody wants that right now. And I think that's DC's fault. Like, well, one doesn't like the uh, Zack Snyder's grayscale painting. He doesn't like it. <laughs> it just makes something fucking brighter, please. <laughs> God damn. Movies are a visual medium. Let me see your movie. Let me see them. <laughs> Let me see what you're doing. Like I said earlier, lighting is a science, but DC fucking doesn't know that apparently. Like, if you can't see the film, but the, it's but bad. he's like he's an he's an auteur, isn't he? Like he's not. Like he he knows, oh God, like he studies he, film. Yeah. He, just, he has, yeah, he has a very yeah, specific. That's just style. the way his his vision is. I yeah. hate that, honestly. I really hate that. I hate that term for for <laughs> filmmakers. I think it's a pretentious thing. I think it comes back to Vin Diesel saying that he's Fellini esque. Like, get over yourself. <laughs> you know hey, what I mean? Don't don't, don't come at Vin Diesel. Don't come at Vin Diesel. <laughs> yeah, well, he's family. We're all family. family. We're all family. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that's my little soapbox. You can do whatever you want with that. You can cut okay. all of that out. Dom, <laughs> uh, before we finish up, uh, anything else you'd like to add on Vin Diesel or the Vin Diesel cinema? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever go on Vin Diesel's Facebook page, um, but <laughs> it is a genuine goldmine. It might be the funniest place on Facebook. Um, I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't want to turn this into the Vin Diesel podcast, but I don't know if you guys saw that Vin Diesel recently tried to uh, get The Rock to rejoin the Fast and the Furious franchise, and he showed yes. an edited picture of himself next to The Rock, where his head is extremely wide and makes him look like three times larger than The Rock. Oh my god, it's great. Um, but I going back to uh, the actual conversation. Um, I think Grant Morrison put it best when uh, he said that Stanley captured the um, captured an audience like no other mm. comic had before. When he said Stanley spoke to the audience, literally, he wrote his characters as if they were real humans, and he spoke to the audience in um, Amazing Fantasy uh, with the first appearance of Spider Man. It was he had captured something different where he said unlike Batman, unlike the flash um, kind of recapturing the same uh, magic that the original captain Marvel, AKA Shazam had captured where he spoke to the audience and he said, this guy is just like you. He has feelings. He has emotions. He's a loser. He gets beat up. He, Mm. he, he goes through hard times. Um, and I feel like the Marvel movies have captured that when, you know, you you see Captain America say, I can do this all day. You feel that because in your heart, you want to be that. You want to be that I can do this all day kind of guy. And when you look at it compared to other movies, I, I don't see myself as Aquaman. I don't see myself as Batman and I don't see myself as Superman, I see myself as somebody who I want to emulate Captain America. I look at Captain America and I say, yeah, he's right. He's a good guy. I want to be him. He loses and he still gets up. Same thing that Stanley captured, what, 60 years ago with Amazing Fantasy 17? 
don't know. Yeah, well, it's just that... like me with, with Thanos, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a guy, you know, he has a big vision for the universe and he's not. Exactly. He won't let people stop him. I, I, I think it's, yeah. yeah. He's willing to make the hard choices, don't he? That's something that we admire greatly about him. It's yeah. interesting that actually just, just goes up on that point. Um, whereas Captain America in the MCU is, is an aspirational figure as far as what he stands for and his willingness to fight even when his shield is broken and he's up against a, a whole force of, of mega strong aliens. And then you compare that to something like the Superman that appears in the DCEU and I think the, the Martha Kent character says to him, like, you don't owe these people anything, which is a very interesting take on the most symbolic of, of, of superhero characters, this idea that actually um, you can kind of just reject the normal human beings around you because, you know, fuck them. Um, so, yeah, I think that is an interesting uh, interesting point to close on, on the difference in, in tone and um, the comparisons of, of one studio that has gone one way and one studio that's gone another um, right, we, we are well past the two-hour mark now. We should probably probably close up here. Um, guys, thank you so much for the, for for talking this over with me. I really enjoyed this episode, and uh, Dominic, especially, thank you so much for for joining us for this episode. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, this has been awesome. Thank you. <laughs> right, uh, from from Dominic, from Vaughn, from Toby, and from Vin Diesel. Uh, thank you very much for listening, <laughs> and uh, we'll have another episode for you in the near future. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.